The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. Thanks, Dini, for reading that for us. The Christian faith, uh, Advent, is a time of expectation. And so in this time of expectation, we've been paying attention to the longings of our hearts. What do we want? What do we desire? What are we longing for as human beings living in this world? And we've been paying attention to a line that the church father, St. Augustine, wrote many years ago where he said, Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And we've been talking about what it means to find our true home in a relationship with God. What God will do when Jesus comes again, when he makes all things new. And so we've been paying attention to the prophet Isaiah, who has been painting this beautiful picture of what the world will look like when when Christ comes again. Now, I don't know if I've done a, a great job of clarifying, perhaps, the different categories that I've been talking about here of home. What do we mean when we talk about our home? It's more than just this place that we go to. It's more than just a feeling inside of us. It's more than just a relationship with God. It is all of those things. And so I want to just walk through what do we mean when we say to find rest in God, to find our true home in a relationship with God. And I've got a slide up there Johnny, if you can pull it up there. We talk about the spiritual aspect of home. In the first week, we, we began talking about a relationship with God as our spiritual home. Basing this on Genesis 1, where we see God creating this space in which he was with humanity. We, he would walk among the garden. And then when sin entered the world, there was a fracture, a break in that relationship. And as a result, ever since then, we've been, we've been walking around with this spiritual restlessness. We talked about the rival mountains that we put in place of our relationship with God that cause this restlessness. We put our trust in things that aren't worthy of trust, that can't hold the desires of our hearts. But we've also been talking about a physical home. Prophecies in Isaiah have been talking about this, this physical Restoration, And we saw it even here in Isaiah 35, where he talks about the deaf and the mute and those who are lame. There is this physical restoration. We see it when Jesus Christ rose again from the dead, when he, you know, he, he was in a physical body that was completely restored. It gives us a picture of what is to come for us in our true home. And lastly, we've been talking about our social Home. This is a place where the nations will come. There is restored peace and prosperity among all the peoples of the world. We have, ever since the beginning in, in the garden, when, when Adam and Eve were, were cast out of the garden, and then the, the Tower of Babel and the nations spread, there has been this, this desire to come back, and we haven't really found a way yet to make that happen on this side of heaven. But we look forward to the coming time when Christ comes again, that the nations will come. It's been all over the book of Isaiah. 
And I want to name these things because I've got some healthy pushback from some, some of us who have, um, and I appreciate pushback and conversation about preaching. Uh, it, it helps me to, to clarify and to touch on things that we ought to touch on. But the main pushback goes like this. How does this actually work? How does this actually work? Does, do we all of a sudden, you know, get into a right spiritual relationship with God and we, we are no longer restless? Do we, what, what is this about the restored body that, that we can look forward to right here in the present moment? Is that true for us now? What about, what about the nations coming when there's so much strife and war and division in our world? What does this look like? You know, do we just have to believe and then we will experience our true home? Not exactly. Again, we take this season of Advent as, as an example, right? We are in hopeful expectation of Christmas. Yes, but that points to the greater Christmas, when Christ will come again, and our hearts will long. We will be in a state of expectation and restlessness to a degree until that final day comes, but we do so on a journey. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, is the way, the way back home. Maybe you're familiar with the C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia. The first book in this, uh, in this series talks about two characters, Diggory and Polly. And they come across these magical rings, and they find their way into Narnia, and, they, and, and, and they're walking around, but then they have to get back. They have to figure out how to get back to their home. And this proves to be a little bit of a challenge. They have to get to the right pool. They have to... And I've, uh, Johnny, I've got a slide here to paint a picture of this for us, but there's this in-between world that they find themselves in with all of these tiny little pools, each of them to a different world, and they have to journey back and find the right one. They've marked it, but they've got to find it, and they're on their way, and they're being chased by the witch, and things are happening. Friends, I'd like to suggest that this in-between world is a little bit of the place that we find ourselves in. Theologians call this the already but not yet kingdom of God, for Jesus has come. He has made it possible through his life, death, and resurrection for us to be in a relationship with him in the present moment. But we are no longer, we are not yet in our full and complete home. And so, friends, this day we are looking at three verses at the end of this passage in Isaiah that describe the way, the way back home, the way that God is taking us even in this present moment. Three things that we'll look at. It's the way of holiness, it's the way of grace, and it's the way of the redeemed. The way of holiness, the way of grace, and the way of the redeemed. Isaiah 35 verse 8 says, And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness, for it will be for those who walk on that way. Notice that Isaiah is saying to these Israelite exiles, these people who are homeless, that there is a way back to Jerusalem. There is a way back that God will open up to the place that they really belong. And what is that way? It's a highway. Now, in ancient cultures, a highway was something very distinct. It wasn't a small path. It wasn't a windy and twisty small path that you had to search for and find. It wasn't an off-road type of thing. It was direct. Highways in ancient cultures were very direct. They were flat. They were as paved as they could get them. It was a little bit like the 401. I imagine less traffic, but a little bit like the 401. 
In other words, this is not an exclusive way. It isn't a secret path that nobody knows about. It's right there, out in the open. God wants this highway to be open to the nations. And in the next phrase, Isaiah describes the highway in a very particular way. And I wonder if you caught that. He calls it the way of holiness. In other words, there is, there is a particular type of person who will walk on this highway, who will be able to find their way back to their true home. And it's very important for us to see what Isaiah is getting at, to understand this biblical idea of holiness. Holiness is a word in the Bible that describes a certain level of morality. It is what we were created in the Garden of Eden to experience with God, this, this perfection in all aspects of our lives. And the, the way that we broke that relationship, we became unclean. We were not able to be in the presence of God. Leviticus 11.44 talks about how, how we are to be holy. It says, I'm the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. And so because we worship a holy God, the way back to him has to include holiness. 1 Peter 1.16 in the New Testament mirrors the Old Testament passage when it says, For it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. For us to make this journey back to our true home, we have to see that God actually requires us to be holy. We can't get there any other way. Now, I know there may be some in this room who, um, who may push back against this idea. When we think about Christianity um, and, and saying, yeah, we were... Christianity requires us to be holy. It requires us to follow the law. As um, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, he says, holiness is not an experience you have. Holiness is keeping God's law. And so there is this law-keeping, morality-based way in which we are called to live, in which we are called to journey back to our true home right here today. How can Christians say this? How can we say that we have the corner on the truth, that we have to abide by this version of morality and justice? What about the other religions of the world? That's a good question. But let me push back on, a, on that for a moment. When we talk, or when we take God out of the equation, if we're to try to think up morality without God, what would we lean on? If we're going to make an, an assessment of, of a moral judgment and we take God out of the picture, how are we going to decide what is right and wrong for us? Say, for example, we believe deeply as Christians that racism is wrong. It's always been wrong. I would imagine that there isn't anybody in this room who would disagree with me there. But why? Why is it wrong? Why should we fight against it? Why should we hate racism? If we can't base it, as Christians do, in the idea that every human being is made in the image of God, worthy of love and dignity, how can we make such a claim? How can we tell other people that that is something that they should care about, that they should fight against? that they should stand up against. What is interesting about the Bible is that holiness is not just something that we have to be, but it is, it brings us into an entirely different experience of the world. 
I was moved by what J.I. Packer says. He says that many of us would pursue holiness with far greater zeal and eagerness if we were convinced that the way of holiness is the way of life and peace. And that's what Isaiah is getting at here, is that to try to find our way back to the place of, of peace, of life, without including holiness in the picture, is not compatible. Those two go hand in hand. As Christian, growing in holiness means becoming more like the people that we were created to be, to experience more and more of our true home. We must see holiness as extremely connected to our partaking in that reality, in that physical, in that spiritual, in that social home. But there's a problem. Isaiah says that this is the way of holiness because only holy people can walk on it. And I don't know about you, but I'm not going to go out on a limb and say that I am worthy of walking on that road. I know that I still fall far short from God's expectation. I know that we all do. And how God addresses this makes Christianity completely distinct than anything else in our world. Because this isn't just the way of holiness, this is the way of grace. Let me point out the next important piece of verse 8. Isaiah says, The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. Now at our gut level, we might see this as exclusion. That there is a certain level of holiness, of moral perfection that's required before you can walk this highway back home and everyone else is excluded. If you're unclean, you can forget about it. But, but think about it. Think about the Christian faith. Would it make sense that this is what Isaiah is saying? Faith, if you think about it, the most central figure in our Christian life, Jesus Christ, was a man who invited tax collectors into his inner circle. He welcomed sinners into his life. He forgave their sins. He hung out with prostitutes and broke almost every social rule in the culture that there was. Christian faith, Jesus Christ, was never exclusive. God has never excluded us from his family. It's always been the other way around. We have always been the one who have excluded ourselves. This goes back to the story of Genesis again. When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, they excluded themselves from the presence of God. They made that decision. They decided to do what they wanted, to chase what they wanted above what God wanted. Ever since then, we have been excluding ourselves from a relationship with God. It's like this. For example, if you, if you had a friend and you're really tight, you know, they're in your same class at school or something, and then you, you did something that broke the trust in the relationship. Perhaps you um, said something about them that, you, that was wrong. Uh, perhaps that you, you know, treated them poorly, or you, you, you did something behind their back. You broke the trust in the relationship. It's you who have excluded yourself from them. By your action, you have put something in between you and your friend that you have to make right. 
If you're to come back into a relationship with them, it takes grace. It takes forgiveness. If you were to choose not to say sorry, not to own up, that's your problem, not theirs. And this is what Isaiah is saying here. The unclean person is not a person who has all of a sudden been disqualified from God's plan or or is not welcomed back on God's highway. The unclean person is a person who has intentionally chosen not to participate in the means of grace. In the Old Testament, there was a system of sacrifices that God gave the Israelites that they could be in a relationship with him. It was how they became clean. It was how they became holy. And that is God's grace to them. And this unclean person in this passage is the person who decides to do things their own way, who says, I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to accept that grace. I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to be my own God. And this is why what Isaiah is saying is so important. There's two takeaways for us today. What we learn in this is that we never outgrow our need for grace. We live from birth to death in a constant and complete dependence upon the grace of God. There is no way out of our restlessness unless we receive God's grace. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, the Welsh preacher, says it like this. He says, were it not for the grace of God, there would be no such thing as a Christian. Let's not kid ourselves. We can't work our way out of our holiness problem. We can't earn our spot on God's highway back home. We must receive his grace. And this brings up the second point, that a life marked by repentance is the Christian life. A life marked by repentance is the Christian life. Repentance is sometimes misunderstood. Repentance, we think, is just admitting that you've done something wrong to God and receiving God's forgiveness for it. And that's one part of repentance. It's being honest, being open. But there's a deeper level that Christians get to when we repent of our sin. And it's this, that we go underneath and we say, it's not just for the things that I've done that I have to repent of, but it's the way that I go about earning my righteousness that I have to repent of. It's not just the things that I've done, it's the way in which I go about earning my way back. We have to repent of trying to do things our own way. We have to repent of being our own Savior and Lord. We have to turn away from trying to do things by our own effort and turn to God. That's the way of grace. That's the Christian faith. Now, what exactly has God done for us to open up this grace, to open up this highway back home, that we may walk in the way of holiness, that we may receive the grace of God? Verses 9 and 10 go into a little bit more detail about this. It says, No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk. And those the Lord has rescued will return. Johnny, I've got a slide for this one too. Do you, does anybody remember the Hunger Games movie? 
Do you remember when in the first movie, it's one of the first scenes that, um, you know, the people are gathered around in District 12 and they're going to pick two people to be serving as tribute for the Hunger Games that's going on. And when it comes time to pick the names, you know, one of the names that's picked is Primrose Everdeen, right? This young girl, and almost immediately after her name is picked, there's a voice from her older sister who says, don't pick her, pick me. I'll go if you let her stay. I'll sacrifice myself so that she can live. Using the language of the Old Testament, we could say that Katniss redeemed Prim. When Isaiah is using this word redeemed here, it's a very widely known term in Old Testament culture. It describes a person who delivers a blood relative from some obligation, legal or financial or social, when somebody covers somebody else, they set them free. And what Isaiah is saying here is that God is Israel's blood relative. They're next of kin. And he covers their sin. He covers their brokenness. And he makes a way for them to get on that highway back home. It is the way of the redeemed. How can God be called our next of kin? God is not like us. Or is he? Friends, isn't that the Christmas story? God becomes one of us. The story of, of Christmas is the story of God becoming flesh. God having blood like us, real and true. And this means, if that story is true, then Jesus Christ has become like us in every way. He put himself in our place. He was born into this world. But he wasn't born into this world in a palace with everything put together. He made himself homeless. He took upon himself our condition. He was born in a stable, in a feeding trough. He had no place to lay his head. Throughout his whole life, he was an outcast. And so he became exactly as we are. All the desires of our hearts were true of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, Jesus became the best version of us. Unlike us, he didn't sin. In fact, it was his righteousness that makes it possible for him to redeem us, to cover us, because he stood in our place. When our name was called, he said, let me go. I'm going to die so that you can live. He earned for us the way back. He made it possible for us to come home. He's redeemed us from our exile right here, right now. If you insist on doing things your own way, on putting something or someone in the center of your life, in the place of God, you will always find yourself wandering. 
you will always find yourself seemingly lost with hope on the horizon but always just out of reach. But if you run to him, if you let God redeem you, cover you, if you get on his highway, the way of holiness, the way of grace, you can expect that no matter what happens in your life, that you will walk on that road, and you can walk on that road even today, singing, singing with joy, singing with an everlasting joy crowned on your head, because you know that because of Jesus, you're on your way home. And eventually one day, we will fully arrive when the hope of Advent becomes true, when Christ comes again and makes this whole place new and everything sad will come untrue. Let's pray. God Almighty, we pray that you would continue to fill us with a deep sense of longing for our true home, but that we may find ourselves and locate ourselves fully in you, that we would make you the center of our lives. God, we are all on a journey together, but we are on a journey with you, knowing that we have been set free from our sin, set free from our brokenness, that we may walk with you all the way home. When we feel down, fill us with joy. When we feel restless, fill us with peace. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.